Welcome to the Accessible Learning Experience, where we help you turn learning barriers into learning opportunities. On this episode, AIM Center Project Director Cynthia Curry chats with Dr. Eric Moore, Director of Learning Technology at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. Dr. Moore's passion for designing more inclusive learning environments and workplaces has been informed and inspired by his own lived experience with disability and the many roles he has had in education, both in the U.S. and abroad. Here then is our conversation with Dr. Eric Moore. Eric Moore, thank you so much for joining us on the Accessible Learning Experience podcast. You're a longtime friend and partner of the AIM Center. Tell us about your accessibility story. What brought you into this field? Well, thank you so much. It's really exciting to be here and to be a guest on a podcast that I've so enjoyed listening to to this point. So my accessibility story, well, to keep it short, I suppose, you know, I myself am, am deaf, you know, a lower D deaf. I consider myself to be part of hearing culture, even though my body is, in fact, completely deaf. Um, I have a cochlear implant that ties me back into the hearing world that I'm, I'm grateful for um, and allows me to maintain that identity that I, I have. But, um, you know, I kind of was thrown into the accessibility arena by, by without choice. Um, starting as, as, a, as a child at about 10 years old, I started to lose my hearing and that loss was gradual um, and, and quite profound actually by the time I was an adult and a professional. Uh, I really wanted to be a teacher my, my whole life. That was just what I, what I wanted to be. Um, you know, and there, wa- there were tough questions that people would bring to me sometimes like, uh, are you sure that might not be a field that you would be, I mean, I'm sure you'd be a great teacher, you know, but, but you're hearing, you know, <laughs> that's sort of like tiptoeing around, like your disability means that you can't be this. And part of me, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a rebel in the sense that I, I, you know, do so without a cause, but if I have a cause, you know, I don't mind standing up to push back for, I, I don't think this is right. Like I, if I, if I believe I'm have the capacity to be a good teacher, that I'm going to be a good teacher, like, and don't tell me otherwise, <laughs> you know. And so I did, and and I was a good teacher, you know. <laughs> like, and I loved teaching, and and I loved loved getting to interact with my students. You know, I had a, a rich career as a teacher for seven years, teaching literature, philosophy, drama, religion, all these subjects um, that really involve a lot of conversation. <laughs> you know, like you can't really teach literature by, by talking to the students, right? It's, it's very much a dialogue. The same thing with philosophy and of course drama, right? I, I went into these things because I loved them, you know, and, and I wasn't going to allow my disability to prevent me from doing what I felt called to do. Um, and so as I've furthered my career and, and moved on into, um, my PhD, you know, and, and moving a teacher education and then into um, professional work and, and instructional design and so forth, I've carried with me that that early um, pushback on the notion that people should be excluded from careers because of their disabilities. You know, well, both the classroom and the career. I really feel like I did it in part because of because of privileges that I have outside of my disability, in part because lots of people were there supporting me through all of that, and because you know I I, I felt like I wasn't going to let something get in get in my way, and so now I'm in a position where I feel like I have an opportunity to be that to be a supportive force for others who are going through similar experiences in school or in in their careers um, to fight for what what. I think makes the world better when we have 
people in all the variety at the table, disability being part of that variable tapestry that makes up humanity. Well, Eric, thanks so much for sharing your accessibility story. I know that so many people who are listening, there'll be people who um, have disabilities, there'll be disabled people who are listening, who relate uh, to your story, and then there'll be those of us who may not have disabilities, but we advocate uh, on behalf of those who do to create more accessible learning experiences for them. Uh, and I know we're all fired up um, by your by your story and your passion. You mentioned a little bit about your career in education. Tell us a little bit more. We know a little bit about your path uh, to getting here. So tell us a little bit about what you've been up to uh, in your education career. Sure. Well, so I started out um, as, a, as a new graduate teaching in um, rural Indiana, you know, so working in, in a school where it, it was a small school where teachers had, in my case, seven preps, <laughs> you know, spanning from sixth grade to 12th grade. Um, you know, it, it was quite a quite a challenging first year. Um, I did find, honestly, that I, I was sort of disillusioned in my first year as a teacher. The school that I was stepping into, despite being rural and so forth, was a blue ribbon school. And so for those who might not have uh, been in public education in the United States in those times, that was during the presidency of George W. Bush. And the blue ribbon schools were those that were excelling in test scores. Um, you know, and it was a really big deal for the school to maintain its high test scores. Um, I have some very strong feelings about that that I won't spend the podcast <laughs> going on about, but uh, I'm not I'm just not a big fan of test scores or the standardized tests at all, you know, and so it wasn't necessarily a very good fit for me. Um, and so I, I, I quickly felt like this school and, and maybe even this country <laughs> isn't going to be a good place for me to teach. So I did, um, began searching for, for other opportunities. And we ended up going from Indiana to Indonesia the next year. Um, so we flew overseas, packed up our, our meager belongings as newlyweds um, and set out for, for adventure, you know, and, and ended up in, in Java, Indonesia, where we taught an international school. And that was really transformative. I feel that was really a, a much better fit for me, you know, where standardized tests were, were not a thing. It was an international baccalaureate school. The focus was on developing the learner. Um, you know, it was then that I really had the experience of, of interacting with a, a substantial number of people from all over the world, where the first time in my life where I was the minority, where, where you know, my language was not the language that, you know, that was spoken by in the country, that sort of thing. And it really helped me attune to some of the experiences that my students in Indiana had that I couldn't really relate to at the time, you know, and I feel like that was really a, a, an important part in pushing me further into where I really had that, that natural propensity for accessibility and universal design for learning, even though I didn't know it by name yet. Um, that experience of realizing what it was like to be minoritized in more than one way um, and, and being able to empathize with my learners in that way really made me uh, feel even more passionate about finding solutions that would that would reach these students. I noticed also, you know, and, and just in the curriculum and the way I was teaching, there was not at first a very big difference in terms of what I taught or how I taught in Indonesia compared to how I did the year before in Indiana. You know, you know like I was kind of going towards the same familiar text that I already knew, you know, the Great Gatsby, To Kill a Mockingbird, whatever, the same literature that I taught in the United States um, to students who did not have any 
cultural contextual understanding for Alabama in the 1950s, <laughs> you know, to speak like it, it, it was, and, and they didn't need to, like it was, if we spent time explaining that to them, it wasn't going to be fruitful, you know? And so I had to, you know, kind of, kind of began to, to fan out and to explore first the literature that represented the learners in my classroom, which is really helpful um, for, for them to feel highlighted at certain times and for me to learn more about where they were coming from and the cultural dynamics of their home countries. And then ultimately, we also intentionally began reading texts from countries that none of us belonged to, you know, that were translated from languages that none of us spoke. And it became a tool for, just as I was having to learn and empathize into, into their cultures, now we were all doing that together. And I was getting to teach them that, that work of being empathetic and, and curious about how people think and, and how values and, and systems are different in different parts of the world. You know, so that was really permeating um, the way that I approached curriculum. And, you know, at the same time, I was looking for different ways to um, to approach my pedagogy, you know, as I recognized that um, there were there were cultural differences that affected how learners learned or how they expressed themselves in the classrooms. And my way of doing things um, weren't always effective. And that was really when I began picking up um, UDL theory and practice, teaching every child in the digital age, you know, I really began immersing in UDL as a recommendation that had, had come to me um, and, and began putting it into practice, you know, probably in a very, a very um, you know, novice way, but nevertheless, see, really seeing the impact, you know, even just the, the intentionality of, of approaching things through this, the multiple means of engagement, multiple means of representation and action and expression, just just the principles, you know, and thinking about that and thinking about how there's more than one way for my learners to get to this outcome was was transformative. And I feel like not only did it make me a better teacher, it made my classes a, a warmer place. Like people felt like they belonged there, um, that they, they didn't have to adapt to the way that you know, this this big white American teacher, <laughs> you know, but that they could bring their authentic selves to my classroom, you know, and, and I even changed the desk formation, you know, well away from the all seats point forward towards the stage on the stage and into pods and then ultimately into couches, <laughs> um, you know, as I, I got down to, to smaller class sizes and we, we basically had a cafe setting in the corner. Um, where we would just sit, sip coffee or tea, you know, the kids could bring those to my class and we'd talk about literature, philosophy, you know, and it was, those are the best classes I ever taught, you know, and I, we felt connected, you know, and I, I believe that that was attributable largely to my learning about UDL um, and my willingness to, um, to, to be open to, to learning about, you know, better teaching, about other people, about other cultures, um, and I, I feel like I'm grateful that I had those opportunities early in my career. When we met to plan this episode over the summer, we talked about a lot of possible topics. So you've already demonstrated all these different diverse um, areas. You're really versatile around accessibility and UDL uh, and culture, uh, culturally responsive teaching. So you have all of the this deep knowledge and wide experiences in the field of accessibility and UDL. So it was both fun and challenging to try to narrow down the possibilities to fit a short podcast. And in the end, you wanted this episode to be about access and belonging in the workplace. You know, belonging is one of the words that you were just um, you know, talking about. Um, why did this topic rise to the top for you? Well, I think, you know, part of it is because of 
I like to I like to focus on where I am now to some extent. Um, I, I certainly miss being in the classroom, but I'm not in the classroom anymore. You know, so my career trajectory has taken me outside the classroom where I'm now more of a support role um, in, a, in a pediatric research hospital. So, you know, supporting faculty who are doing really important work with, with children with disabilities um, or injuries um, and, and helping them develop learning experiences to train their own faculty or, or other doctors around the world, that type of thing. And so, um, I'm more in, in industry now than I am in a formal education environment. And so, um, I, but I carry with me all of the background that we've been talking about, you know, and so I'm, I'm not just an instructional designer. I'm an instructional designer who came from being a, a teacher, an international community member, you know, all of those things. And so this still influences how I see things in, in the workplace. Um, and so the, a lot of the work that I'm doing now outside of my a technical job description is about promoting accessibility in the workplace and really it's for the very same reasons that 20 some year old me was learning about UDL in the classroom. It's because we want to create workplaces where people belong, where all the diverse voices can come to the table, where nobody is made to feel that they can't do a job because of their disability, right? Um, and so just like we don't want students to feel like they're not good at literature or drama or whatever because of, of, of a um, disability or difference of any form. So it's something that I'm immersed in right now that I'm excited about because I get to explore and I'm learning about it right now. And I, I just love to share things as I'm learning about them. So how have you seen a lack of accessibility get in the way of the career advancement of people who use assistive technology? So mainly the way I've seen, seen the lack of accessibility in the way of advancement, I've seen it in two ways. You know, first at my time in a, a large Southeastern university, and then now at my current employer, I've sort of seen this in, in different ways. Um, in the university setting, oftentimes what I saw when I was working with faculty, and of course championing accessibility and so forth, was this attitude that people with this type of disability don't become X, Y, or Z, you know, profession, major, whatever. For example, as we were looking to purchase software for drafting, for architectural rendering, um, I got the, the statement that, well, you know, if you're blind or if you're low vision, you can't be an architect, right? And I went and I, I pulled up an article because there was this blind man, a um, man who, who actually became blind after he was an architect, who is still an architect. Um, and it does a really good job. And his, his creative accessibility solution or his, his assistive technology is Wikisticks. Um, it's a great article. I think it was in 60 Minutes where, where he did this, this interview. But he basically does architectural rendering with Wikisticks, so those wax-covered um, strings, basically. And then they use um, a scanner to convert that into a CAD drafting, you know, on the computer and so forth. Um, and he, he's giving more, much more credence to the way a building feels and sounds. You know, he's experiencing architecture in a totally different way. And what he claims and what his firm has found is that he's actually a better architect since he went blind than he was before because he just is encountering it in a way that very few architects had ever done before, right? And so I shared this with, with the architectural department and the argument that I made was that if you were blind, would you come to a university with that attitude? 
you know, to, to learn to be an architect? Because I wouldn't. You know, like it's a, it's a chicken and egg thing. If we create systems and spaces where people don't feel they belong, of course they're not going to show up, right? But then you're taking the wrong message away if the message you take away is that they can't. The message that you should take away is that you've prevented them. You've missed the opportunity to do something pretty remarkable, to have an opportunity to see the world in a different way, to see a profession in a different way. Um, here at the Institute, we're really making steps forward, I think, to, towards accessibility. And it's something that I think is, is ingrained in the attitudes here, that we are an institute that supports children with disabilities. That's what we do. Um, but one, one place that I feel has been overlooked, perhaps, has been as we're focusing on accessibility for our end users, for the children and their families, um, we've sometimes just, just kind of skipped over, but what about the employees, right? And this isn't just this institute, this is across the board in industry, every industry I've been in, including education. When you talk about accessibility in education, it's about the end users, the end users, the end users. When we talk about accessibility in software, oftentimes looking at the end user, not the one who's developing something with the software. For example, you know, we talk about how to make a PowerPoint presentation accessible. We don't talk about how the PowerPoint platform is accessible to somebody making a PowerPoint <laughs> as much, you know? And so those are the conversations that I think we need to be having if we're going to be serious about making sure that workplaces are, are spaces that, that are warm and welcoming for people with disabilities, for, for the variability um, and, and the new ideas and the new experiences and new perspectives that they bring. That getting past this idea that this is a, a cumbersome thing that we have to do or, or, or it's a charity or something and, and instead seeing we're better because we're making a place at the table for everybody, including the disabled folks among us. Thanks so much for bringing in the story of Chris Downey, Eric, the, the architect who lost his vision later in life. I would encourage anybody who's not familiar uh, with, with Chris Downey's story uh, to watch it, I think that, and read about it, because I think that that's a, such an exemplar um, that we can all learn from. So in, in that context of the broader picture of your experiences uh, as a disabled person, as well as, as your observations of what makes uh, a welcoming, uh, comfortable workspace for people uh, with disabilities. What recommendations do you have for our listeners who have the opportunity to make their workplaces more accessible? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, well, I think the biggest thing that, that I've learned in my career is that it's, it's really important that people speak up. So if you are yourself a disabled person, um, it is so important that you not hold back. If, if you feel like the, you have an unmet need, like, like the, the institute just, just or, or I'm sorry, the, the organization that you work for um, has accessibility barriers that are preventing you from doing your job to your full capacity, it's really important that you speak up um, because not only are you in, in doing so, do you ensure um, that you're able to really shine and to be to be fully present and have an equitable work experience, which is critically important. I've also found that there are a lot of people who feel for a multitude of reasons afraid to speak up, who might have the very same needs that you do. And by championing change in your organization, 
other people will benefit from that as well. Especially if, if you push for not just accommodation models, but accessibility models, universal design models, pushing for systemic change rather than just what do you do for me? Um, that really can have auxiliary benefits for, for lots of other people, current or future at the, at the organization. And going back to my point before, possibly making your organization the kind of organization that, some, that a disabled person would seek out and want to work for because they recognize quickly or early on that the barriers have already been removed, that, they, that they, this organization wants various people, including disabled people, to work there. It can really be transformative. So that speaking up doesn't make you a burden. It doesn't make you a problem. It makes you somebody who knows that, that you have something meaningful to contribute and that that contribution goes beyond you to other folks now or in the future who might be working there. That speaking up also pertains to those who are not disabled. You know, if, if you recognize that there are barriers, there's um, a, a good opportunity here to draw attention to the barrier. This does not necessarily mean needing to refer to a certain person, right? You don't want to get in that situation where you're, um, you're, you're outing somebody, right? But you can say, I recognize that there's an accessibility problem in our conference room. I noticed that our videos, our training videos are not closed captioned. I noticed that our website does not have sufficient color contrast, right? Focus on the barriers that you see in the workplace and draw attention to those, to the appropriate people to get those things changed, right? That's being a, a strong ally for, for us disabled folks. Um, it is showing that you yourself care about it and it draws attention to the organization that they should be caring about it too. By calling out accessibility barriers that don't affect you personally, you're really demonstrating a high level of ethical awareness you know, what Piaget or Kohlberg would, would get as, you know, some of the higher levels of ethics um, and are helping your organization become a better place for everybody to work in. So that's a really important opportunity. I would also say what has been said many times, including I think on this podcast, that when organizations are, are trying to do things that, to support disabled people, which is really good and really important, nothing about us without us. What we mean by that is that oftentimes we see these really good intentions fall flat because people didn't consult disabled folks about what actually works. You know, what, what are the current best practices? How, how do we best address this barrier? And they maybe just, just go out and, and try something, you know? So it's, it's important that I want to honor the effort that organizations make when they're doing that, but I also want to encourage them that that effort is so much better spent when you involve the beneficiaries um, in, in addressing that. Sometimes it's helpful, I think, for to get this point across here and elsewhere to recognize, again, that disability is one type of variability. Like, would you know, women, would you be okay with a bunch of men in a room deciding what women need? Right or or you know would would um, people of color would you be happy with a bunch of white folks talking about what people of color need? You know, of course not. Those things are so immediately obvious to us, and yet when it comes to disability, oftentimes we have a bunch of people without disabilities deciding what disabled folks need, and we need to get to a point where we recognize that that's just as wrong as the first two examples, and we need to actively um, counteract that in our workplaces. So nothing about us without us is what is what I heard you uh, say uh, in 
in a lot of different ways with the examples and how just important it is to make sure that people with disabilities are part of uh, the design of, of an environment, whether it's physical or digital. Uh, reminds me of our four-part video series at the AIM Center, the accessibility across the lifespan. And so many things that you said, I, I'm really proud to say, are uh, also mentioned in that video series around starting a conversation with others about accessibility that really it's a, it should be a community response and it should not be retrofitting. Uh, sometimes it does necessitate retrofitting, but really we'll, we want to think about accessibility from the beginning. And I was also reminded um, in your discussion about the fact that UDL really started in the built environment, so universal design um, in physical spaces. And that goes back to the first few episodes uh, of the Accessible Learning Experience, where we interviewed a couple of the founders of CAST, uh, David Rose and Skip Stahl, and we learned that UDL really did originate from universal design um, in the environment. So thank you for bringing us full circle. So last question, Eric, is how do we stay in touch with you? Um, I am a 21st century citizen, and so <laughs> it's easy to find me if you try. You can find me on Twitter um, with the, the handle at Inospire, that's I-N-N-O-S-P-I-R-E-E-D-U, Inospire E-D-U. Um, they can also find my, my website, inospire.org, um, where I do consultations and keynotes and, and good stuff like that. Um, or just reach out to me by email. You can reach me at drejmore at inospire.org. I love to, to hear from people and the stories and adventures that you're going on as well and have uh, any opportunity that I have to come alongside you and support others' good work and UDL and accessibility in uh, education and industry alike. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you spending the, the time with us. We know how busy you are, uh, how in demand you are. I know that this podcast is going to attract a lot of attention, and we're really proud that you were a guest on the Accessible Learning Experience. Thanks so much again. Thank you. And, you know, I, I feel like it's the other way around. I'm honored to be a guest on this podcast. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Accessible Learning Experience, brought to you by the National Center on Accessible Educational Materials at CAST. You can find us on the web at aem.cast.org. There you'll find show notes with links to all of the resources mentioned on each episode. Thanks again for listening, and remember, accessibility is everyone's responsibility. The contents of this podcast were developed under a cooperative agreement with the U.S. Department of Education. However, those contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government.